G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Merch, producer and host. Thanks for joining us. Let's head into our feature guest. Alex Leo in this chat covers from their beginnings to their latest music, including the timely number 405. Alex joined us from England for this extended chat. Alex, welcome to Radio Notes. Hey, man. Thanks for having me, John. What drew you to the garden shed as a young child? I guess it was just a place. See, my brother's a musician too, and it was kind of the place where we'd kind of go to get away from the all the noise in the house with the dog and everything else. It just sort of became, it was it was a summer house that was built by my dad first, and it just slowly turned into like this little cave of musical bits and bobs. Another friend of mine that went to school who was also studying music at the time, as we got into like early teens, we started buying little bits of recording equipment and it just kind of turned into this little uh, this little hovel of music bits and bobs. So yeah, it was kind of like a natural progression, really. We just used to spend way too much time in there as, as uh, young teenagers at high school working on bits of tunes and that's kind of how the whole garden shed thing came to be. Well, let's talk about your brother then. Did he coax you into the world of music or was it some other family member that introduced you to music and into that shed environment? Um, I think it was the other way around, actually, because my, my brother's five years younger than me. Weirdly, I mean, it was kind of strange because no one else in my family is really musical. We found out through my my mum's parents that uh, so my grand's dad, he was a, like a pub singer. He used to sing around the local pubs and stuff. But as far as I'm aware, that's the only kind of musical uh, thing that we can find in like the immediate family. So it's quite strange that my brother took, ended up taking music too, um, and he's currently studying music down in Bristol. So yeah, I think I think maybe I must have rubbed off on him musically I guess because around the time he was obviously five years younger than me and I was playing in a lot of rock bands and stuff out of high school so I guess he was always around it helping me lift gear in and out of the pubs and vans and whatever else. Well let's talk about pubs and let's talk about you being five or six years of age and going to the pub watching the uh, I assume it to be the soccer with your father at the pub. I know it's like very stereotypical of like British culture but it kind of is you know um pretty like working class background and like pubs are a big part of life big community place and yeah it was always surrounded by going to the pub or either you know watching sporting events or hanging out with friends or watching live music and bands and you know a lot of my earliest memories of watching live music was probably at the pub somewhere and sort of my dad used to do a lot he still does works around the country quite a lot driving around and during the summer holidays actually once he discovered that I could sort of knock a couple of tunes out with my acoustic guitar, we used to kind of check the local newspapers wherever he was going in the summer. I'd sometimes come along with him in the van. We'd kind of look to see if there was any local open mics around in whatever local town he was in. And uh, I'd take my guitar along and we'd just kind of rock up and I'd just play like two or three tunes in some random little town somewhere um, some like working man's club or something <laughs> from like the age of sort of 15, 16. So kind of that was kind of my early education into gigging, really. My dad driving me around to all these different places uh, whilst he was working. <laughs> but Alex, who gave uh, you that acoustic guitar? 
uh, yeah, it was my mum my and dad, really. It was sort of, that was the, I think they saw they had an interest. I think if we go right back, they were offering like free guitar lessons at my primary school when I was sort of five or six. And I think from stories, from parents retelling the stories, for some reason I, I wanted to play like, there was, there was like three different lessons. I think there was like flute, violin or guitar. And for some reason at like five years old, I think I really wanted to play violin. But I don't think there's any spaces left. So my mom just put me down for guitar and I kind of went along to these little lessons at school once a week and never really thought anything of it. And slowly, obviously, over time, kind of become more of who I am, I guess. Did you over the years keep a bit of an interest in the violin over the years? Not saying that you play it at all, but that you actually kept a bit of an ear out for it in maybe music that you listen to. Oh, yeah. There's like, for instance, I did a couple of recordings almost well, two years ago now. I did like a session with this live band and something I've always wanted to do is construct songs that have like string arrangements and stuff because I just think it's so, you know, there's so much depth to what you can do with string arrangements and I really wanted to use it in my own music at some point. And so that was the opportunity I had a couple of years ago. Although Although my parents don't play, they've always been big lovers of music and you know, we were around a lot of a lot of different types of tunes growing up, which you don't realise at the time, but obviously it shapes it shape it's shaping your taste all the time, isn't it? What were the records that were in those collections or that you were listening to at that age? We were talking about it um, the other day, actually. Funny enough, I remember my mum had this old. Uh, it was the first car we had with electric windows, and I remember, I remember being fascinated by like having a car we didn't have the windies anymore on old Nissan. That was the first like sort of nice car we had and it had like a tape deck and we mom mom's always been a massive rod stewart fan so i always remember like listening to like loads of his solo albums and stuff growing up we were listening to the killing of georgie that tune it's like a six minute song the other day i always remember that like that is just a vivid memory of me being in the car driving around listening to early rod stewart and then my dad was always into like the more classic stuff he was it so because the Rod Stewart connection, he was into like the faces and things like that and Stevie Marriott and some like early faces stuff. And also some of the more sort of like, I guess, dad rock now, but things like Thin Lizzy and um, all those types of bands that we used to listen to in the van. But he, he also was a really big Motown fan as well. My dad, you know, sort of growing up, we'd always have just a, just a really wide collection of tunes from that era, really, from sort of 60s, 70s. I think there's a song called Easy Way, which is about fatherly advice. Yeah. That's actually the next track. I've, I've just finished organising that. That's, that's actually due to be released August 28th, but that's that's the next song. Yeah, that that song was inspired by a bit of fatherly advice, I suppose. Um, the wisdom of someone that's sort of lived 60-plus years. <laughs> I was kind of just getting to finalising this trip to New York, and there's a huge amount of apprehension about because there was a lot riding on it like you know a, the opportunity came around to make it happen you know I had to budget wise it was kind of a lot of my own money that kind of went into this and there was a lot of people involved in making it a reality that obviously I hadn't met for the first time so there was lots of unanswered questions about like how successful it was actually going to be or whether I was even going to be able to pull it off and just apprehensive about that and hoping that it all came to fruition and you know, it was just one night we were talking and he, he basically, in the most generic terms, kind of just said, you know, the opportunities when they arise, you just, 
you've got sometimes you just have to take them and, and worry about you're always going to learn from from experience whether it turns out good or bad you're always going to end up taking something away from it in the end so you know you just got to put yourself out there and kind of hope for the best in the most simple terms and so that kind of inspired the because I'd already had the idea had the melody and stuff knocking around and I just needed a bit of focus to to come up with some I guess lyrical inspiration for that tune so that conversation kind of led to uh to that track really what was the vibe in the studio in America I just it was like an overwhelming feeling of um like I was actually really content at just the minute I got in the room with all those guys, I was just like, this, this was such a good decision. Like uh, really thankful for that. Not knowing it could have quite easily not been that, but, but sometimes like the whole gut instinct things, it's a strong feeling. And I just had from the contacts that I had the chap called Quinn Devlin, who's, you know, he's the musician that connected me to this whole thing. And just through him alone and the producer that owns the studio, I just got a really good feeling about them as people and their work ethic and stuff. And once we were in there, it just came together so quickly. And I'm kind of stood in this booth just, and we're just working on this track. And bearing in mind, we've only met each other like as a whole band. It was kind of like the days of recording was kind of the first time we all properly met each other. And it just clicked. I was thinking about, you know, those sort of conversations you have back home. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's so true. Like I just kind of, this opportunity came up and I just kind of fabricated it. I, I kind of pushed really hard to make it happen. And now all of a sudden I'm just stood in this space in the middle of Brooklyn and it's, and we're actually tracking stuff and it's, it's, it's actually becoming a reality. And it was kind of like a bit of a weird out of body experience. You kind of just stood there almost like looking down at it all, just like, I can't believe we're doing this and it's sounding so good. So that was kind of how I felt going in. It was just this feeling of contentment and a feeling of like, weirdly, even though it's a complete sh- foreigner there i just felt really at home which was a nice feeling to have because this song is about a father's advice have you not taken your father's advice in the past that you wish you had and and maybe share with us what it was if if you haven't i'm sure there is tons growing up you just you you think you know everything don't you and then you realize as you get older that they were right i mean he's been he's he's been right about a lot of things to be honest (laughs) as older people generally are because they've, they've lived a bit. There's been loads of stupid ones. Like, you know, you go camping with your friends for the weekend and he'll suggest taking a thing that you think you don't need and then you get there and you realise that he was right. <laughs> like this underground sheet, this big thing once. That's a stupid example, but like, you know, he was like, you'll need that if, if the weather turns. And then, of course, the weather did turn and we all got soaked from the ground up from this tent between him and your music, what is that conversation like when you're talking to the father about your music and, and what you're doing with it and your dreams and aspirations there for it? I guess it's just a deep, like, because I'm very lucky in the fact that, like, I've got a very supportive family unit, you know, right since the early days. They've always been hugely supportive of, like, me and my brother and our decision to kind of pursue music and a career in music because it's, it is – I mean, when you're young and you start off in music, you, you think everything's possible. And then as you start get older and you get a bit more jaded and a few more knockbacks, you just you realise how difficult the climate of the music industry is. But, you know, I think they probably knew that when we decided that that's what we wanted to do and they still remain supportive. And like my dad, you know, he runs his own little, little business and 
I think he made a conscious decision for me not to end up following that path and just sort of being in that industry that he's in and and uh, that he's propped me up and supported me and my brother through that whole period of just like pursuing, like making, changing tracks really and, and doing something completely out of the ordinary from the rest of the family, you know, just pursuing art or pursuing music and uh, through that support link that kind of makes it a strong connection because obviously they they are just super supportive and I think also like I spent a lot of time with his dad growing up too like my granddad Fred like I spent a lot of time so it's kind of weird because you know I got as a, as a youngster spending a lot of time with obviously his father figure and you, you so you're almost getting like a double whammy of all of that influence and obviously he was a great bloke as well from a different time obviously but yeah it just kind of all feeds into that network of feeling loved and respected and it allows you to just be creative so I guess that's the overall connection. In 2011 you headed to Norway and you've said of that it built a bit of resilience you need as a songwriter. I mean the first time I went out there I think I was like 18. The way that whole thing came about is there's a local venue here in uh, in a city called Worcester which is like the, the next city along from where I'm based. The, uh, the venue is called the Mars Bar because the guy that owns it, Brian Marr, is a clever play on the, the whole Mars Bar thing. It's deemed in high regard locally here because it's give it's give a lot of young musicians huge opportunities because it was kind of the first venue in the area that kind of felt professional. You know, it's got it's got staging and proper rigging there, and and you know, decent touring bands would come through and, and play on a, on a weekend. So it was always a hub. You know, when I went to college in Worcester studying music, always a place that everyone kind of hung out on the weekends or if they weren't gigging there themselves or watching their friends play, it was just like this big network of music and, and all of that good stuff. The guy that owns it, Brian, he's kind of got his fingers in lots of pies everywhere. He's kind of a bit of a entrepreneur. He's got things going on everywhere. One of these things he had going on was him and a friend of his, they, they kind of co-owned this English themed pub out in Norway in this ski resort called Hafiel. They used to kind of cherry pick. I think obviously he used to keep his eye on who came through the Mars bar and anyone that was kind of on their way to, I suppose, sort of honing their craft. He would give them the opportunity to come out to Norway and, and sort of do residencies there and uh, just put bands together and just play to the after ski punters really and just get a sense of what it's like to kind of do back to back shows and be in front of crowds that necessarily aren't there for you. So you've kind of got battle with them a little bit and particularly like that environment too, where people just want like party music, being a, a folky singer songwriter at heart, you'd be lying to yourself if you didn't want like a completely dead silent room, everyone attended to, but having those nights where you're playing to a room full of drunks and they're trying to climb on stage and pour shots at you and stuff while you're singing all the old classics, it's a good, good baptism of fire, I think, as a young teenager doing that. Did you ever slip one of your originals in and hope they just didn't notice? Yeah, I used to do that quite a lot, actually, towards the end. Just try and keep yourself sane, to be mm. honest, you know, because there's only so many times you can sing Sweet Caroline or whatever before you, you go slightly insane. You know, sometimes we take a couple of folky tunes. I used to play a good friend of mine, Jasper Malone, He's in a great like folk rock outfit called Jasper and the Company Brothers. He acted like a bit of a mentor to me as well because he was a few years, a couple of years older, and we did this little duo while we were out there where he would play like a bit of like of a Mumford style thing where he have a kick drum and 
he'd have all these effects running through his acoustic guitar. And we basically used to make like a like a rock band sound from like the folkiest looking duo you've ever seen. You know, it'd just be like, because we used to have to get the place pumping, you know, all these guys were coming off this from ski resorts and they wanted to get drunk and have a good time. So you'd have to kind of come in hard with these sets, rock up some of our own tunes quite often just to, and, and by that point they'd had so many beers that like they didn't know what they were listening to. We, we could have been half as good. I mean, we're big, I'm big in myself up here, but we could have been half as good at that point and uh, we'd, have been, we'd have been fine, you know. Your last, <laughs> your last gig before lockdown was at some place called the Jam Cafe in Nottingham. Was it a good gig? Yeah, it was actually because um, it was quite surreal because I kind of, I was a bit jet lagged still because I'd, I'd just come back from New York like a few days before. I was still riding that emotional wave of trying to decompress like what had just happened to me over those like four or five weeks. I didn't really feel ready to just jump back in. I kind of wanted a few more days to, to myself, but this gig came about and it was for a really good friend of mine, their act called Sunflower Thieves. They were playing this EP launch in Nottingham and they asked me to open up and it was really nice actually because I hadn't seen them for a long time and it was it was a good excuse for a catch-up and they always pull like a really nice great audience that are really attentive and want to listen you know to it was it's a great little cafe type bar and everyone was kind of seated and it was sold out it's just a nice environment to play some songs and obviously I had a bunch of stories that I could tell about where I'd just been and so yeah it was it was a nice nice little gig yeah I can't I can't tell you how much I've missed the, uh, you know, the live setting. Um, and I think everyone's in agreement on that. I mean, when it first happened, I was kind of, I, I kind of thought, kind of selfishly, I was like, oh, this is, you know, a good chance to kind of hunker down and, uh, you know, we'll only be, it'll be for a couple of weeks. And but obviously, as time's gone on and and you're seeing how how much these, I'm sure it's the same for you guys over there, but like the small venues that kind of rely heavily on the grassroots thing, they're mm-hmm. they're really struggling right now, and it's um scary to think because you, you don't want to lose these places because they're so integral to our culture and giving young musicians a platform mm. it's so important to save them and I, I think it's we're in a real dangerous place at the moment what kind of resilience did working in norway at the age of 18 give you that now eight years later you're still tapping into i think um it keeps you very grounded playing it was like a stark contrast because you were there. I mean, like, because it really was like a winter wonderland, like the, the views, especially when you used to play, because we used to do this other gig at the top of the mountain as well at this bar. The panoramic view was just absolutely stunning. And you couldn't believe that, like, singing songs had took you out to this place, you know. So I was always in awe of that. But in terms of, like, the clientele and just playing to people from all different walks of life, it just keeps you very humble, very grounded, stops you kind of running away with your own ideas a little bit about, being a purist and an artiste and all this kind of stuff, it, it kind of keeps you, because, you know, when you're playing those places and people just want to be entertained, you can't get too carried away with how you see yourself. You're just, you're just there to kind of crack on and not everyone's going to enjoy what you do. And that's just part of life. It teaches you not to be so emotionally reactive to everything that, that happens, you know, because when you're young, when you're playing out there, you're kind of bearing your soul and you think, you think, how can anyone criticise? But of course, it's life and people do in, in all walks of life as well. So it's quite reflective, I think, of, of many other aspects of life. You know, not everyone's going to agree with you and that's it's okay. You kind of see this whole, even during a song sometimes, you can 
you can kind of feel the energy in the room and this whole thing develops during the course of the song sometimes whether people are on side or they're not or the thing with live music as well it's just so unique and the live streams have been great but you, they're just never going to capture that energy of each time you, you could have a run of shows and each night you play it's a different set of people different room different energy and it's that lightning in a bottle you can't just recreate that each night you can play the same set each night but it's going to be different because each individual person brings a different energy into that room and the venue's got a certain energy too and you might be feeling different than you did last night so it's just whoever's in that room sharing it with you at that moment is like that is the moment i think in this in the age that we live in whereas everything's digital and virtual it just plays into our human a natural human condition to to have something tangible and i think i do think whenever you've been to a, a concert or a gig and you feel that energy that collective energy with a stranger stood next to you watching the same band or whatever like you can't quantify that you can't put that onto a screen talking about tangibility of music talk me through morning heights the prince oh yeah this is a limited so, edition um, of 50, so I assume the sold out. Talk me through the work of Bonnie Churcher Owen. She's a friend of ours down in Bristol. I actually originally met her through my, through my brother's little clique down in, down in Bristol. They're all at art school and music school and stuff. And uh, I've been following her because she's a musician too. She puts out all her own stuff and she's a great, she's got a great sound and a great image. And all of her visuals that she does are just really captivating. And when I was thinking about artwork for this album I just kind of wanted something because the whole trip to me if I had to describe it was kind of like cruisy it was like this smooth kind of flow it felt like you were in a when she got to Brooklyn and you got used to that speed and that flow of New York like it, it, it just kind of that's what it was like it, the music kind of just flowed I was talking to her about this and I said I just wanted some artwork that kind of like reflected that motion of almost like being submerged in water. Like, so she's a great artist and she just kind of literally had like paint. She just got, you know, had had some stuff and she just started working on um, this idea of that notion. And she sent me these things through and with a bit of tweaking, I was just like, oh, that's such a beautiful looking. Cause I wanted something, I wanted something kind of abstract that, that relates to the music on like a deeper understanding but to someone passing it still looked like a standalone beautiful piece of art that someone could have and attach their own meaning to it if they wanted you know and that's exactly what she did she, she created this beautiful piece of artwork and they're um, gorgeous they're absolutely stunning the a3 as well which um a3 is a really good size for like a small studio or a desk or something like that they're not too big not too small. Hi, I'm Bridget Bardini. My brand new single, Aphrodite, is out now. I'm coming up on Radio Notes. Talk to us about Latitude 18, the bar, and uh, who you met at a wedding. Oh, yeah, you've, you've done your research there, John. That's, uh, yeah, that was a few years back now. It was basically through uh, an old girlfriend of mine, Lydia. Um, it was her, actually her sister's wedding. And we got invited out because Lydia is a great vocalist too and we've written songs together. And We got asked if we wanted to come out because um, Lydia's family are from, they're actually from upstate New York and the connection there was her grandmother has like a timeshare place in, um, in St. Thomas in the Caribbean and that's where her sister Brittany was having the wedding and 
So they asked us if we wanted to come out and play for their wedding, basically, which was obviously a great opportunity for us as performers, but also, I mean, the location couldn't have been any more. It was the most beautiful place I've ever been. And uh, for someone who's a bit of a water baby like me, I, I couldn't get enough of it, you know. It's the first time it's the first time I'd ever been in an ocean that I didn't need to wear a four-mil wetsuit, you know. It was just really nice. You go snorkeling, you had like nearly 30 feet of visibility to the bottom, you know. I know we're, we're kind of airing in Australia, so you, you guys have kind of got some, you're pretty spoiled for choice in terms of your coastlines there too. I mean, that goes without saying, really. Absolutely stunning place to, to be and uh, to visit and to obviously, again, be there through the musical connection it was a bit of a blessing. But Latitude was just this incredible bar. Like, it, it just had this weird kind of energy to it because obviously it's quite an exclusive island. So there's lots there's lots of money floating around there. But Latitude is kind of just outside of that wall where you'd kind of have this mix of all sorts of kind of quirky locals and they had this resident band there hosted by a guy called uh, John the Fiddler. And he's just like this old guy in his like 70s. He's a real quirky, funny, witty bloke anyway. And I think the idea of his name for all those years was the double on something. Legend of a bloke. And they could just knock out any tune like anyone shouted out that they could do, you know. And he'd do really funny renditions. And he, he used to write loads of his own music as well like really politically charged or whatever you know like songs about like trump towers and like all this stuff and just like hilarious just hilarious tunes and yeah so we used to spend like most nights in there because they'd be playing like four or five nights a week and uh, it was right on the water's edge and they sold this like mango lager there this mango beer that was just couldn't get enough of if i was sat with a six pack at home probably wouldn't have tasted as good but being like do you know what i mean being right on that yeah on that environment and the combination of having that there, it was just like the whole experience of uh, that whole sensory thing was just mind-blowing, yeah. <laughs> and the memories of earlier in the day. Now, the reason why I mentioned that, I guess the Australian connection, is your song, All We Need. I met this young Australian couple actually while I was in, in this latitude, 18, one night, and they'd kind of, they started talking to me about, you know, what they were doing in St. Thomas. And St. Thomas is famous for... It's called kind of um, sailor's paradise, like because it's a great place if you want to learn to sail because there's lots of protection from certain areas with wind conditions and stuff, and you you can learn to sail there quite nicely, and you you can sail between islands. And so yeah, they were telling me about oh you know we've come here in search of a boat, you know we're looking to kind of live on a boat and we want to sail, and so you know after we we'd had a few pints, it kind of I was just under the assumption that they were quite seasoned uh, sailors you know coming from Australia and being by the coast and everything else I just assumed a bit <laughs> the conversation came back around to that a bit later on and it was the first time they'd ever you know they came to St Thomas with the idea to learn to sail because they'd heard that it was a great place to learn and then they were gonna buy a boat and then sail it back to Australia from St Thomas which obviously I just thought was absolutely Crazy, you know, I, I've got a lot, many different words for what I thought that was. But yeah, crazy, crazy is like definitely one of them. Uh, but also like I kind of admired the blind, like just the, they're like dogmatic, like we're going to do this at any, like we're going to make it happen somehow. Reading between the lines, I did think they had, I think they had some friends that were, that were a bit more accomplished that were going to like help them achieve it. But 
the fact that they were just going to do it was pretty mind blowing and kind of weirdly quite romantic. I thought that like the way they were, they were, they seemed so excited and two of the happiest people I've ever met about this idea of going on this adventure. And so I got back to the, got back to the room pretty tipsy and uh, just knocked that little, it's quite a folky tune really, but it's just like a little ditty about like what their journey might have been like to get back to Oz from St. Thomas. <laughs> Lyrically, finding way back home. When in your life have you felt like you were finding your way back home, Alex? There's been, there's, there's been moments for sure. I mean, I spent some time in Europe playing gigs. I was in Germany and stuff and feeling a bit homesick. I mean, there's, there's been a few times when I felt fairly towards the end of the States trip, you know, because I was kind of sofa surfing for a good stretch of time and we had an absolute blast like making this record and everything else, but there's definitely towards the end, like when you when you knew when you knew the trip home was was imminent, you were just like, I can't, you know, I can't wait to just get back and reset, you know. And when you're in a different country for a long period of time, you you don't think that your that your country's culture and stuff, you don't think it rubs off on you as much as it actually does, you know. And when you when you spend a long time away from home you realize just how different other cultures are you know and, and you would think someone like america being so connected i mean because of same with australia we're all kind of westernized countries and we all operate on sort of similar principles to a certain degree but you know we are very different and that's what makes it so great traveling to australia traveling to the states that's what makes it so brilliant is the fact we are so connected but we are so different sometimes when you're feeling a bit a bit low or a bit or a bit kind of tired you just want those home sensibilities don't you, you want those mm. familiar things you know alex leo is our very special guest on radio notes we're talking about a brand new single it's the first one in about two years it's called 405 and it's called 405 because he was actually writing waiting for a train due at that time as he was looking up 405 a train heading down to cornwell is this all true is that the background of 405 and for those playing at home that goes for four minutes and seven seconds which of course adds up to 11. <laughs> Yeah, it was true actually. That that was kind of the premise of it. I didn't I didn't completely write it there and then, you know, it sounds very folklore and very Bob Dylan-esque. Did you just name drop Taylor Swift's new album? Very folklore. Did I? Yeah. Oh folklore. Oh, oh. yeah, yeah. That came out today, didn't it? I was actually just listening to the first track as uh, as we went. I was testing my headphones and I, I saw that it's all the national crowd and uh Bonivere and everyone's kind of chipped in on this record. I was intrigued to see how the production sounds on it. Back to 405, as you were saying. I was going south. I've got a lot of friends down on the coast down there. And um, this whole thing had kind of gone on up here just musically at the time. I'd uh, just gone through some kind of weird, a weird time career-wise for me. I'd, I'd lost my first manager where we'd just come to disagreements and broke down over just before this New York trip, funnily enough. But I'd kind of just... Yeah, it was kind of like a the end of a chapter, beginning of a new one, and I just kind of felt like I needed to clear my head a little bit and get away and see some other friends that I hadn't seen in a while. And getting down to the coast is always a great excuse to clear the mind, and um, so that that track was kind of sort of based around that whole idea, really, of uh, you know, get getting on a train, getting getting down to somewhere, and kind of forgetting about 
everything for a little bit and resetting your mind ready for a new chapter. The lyric, go out for yourself for once, I interpret that very much maybe of someone who has a partner who they're always doing something with and they're going obviously out, you're encouraging them to go out by themselves. Can we lean into the fact that that may be a manager who was always telling you to do this gig or that gig and you telling yourself to go and do a gig for yourself instead of for someone else? Yeah, I think um, I think it was sort of quite rhetorical for me. That whole statement, go out for yourself once, was kind of, in my own mind, I was applying it to like a lot of different situations. It was sort of, yeah, very much that, you know, and also relationship-wise as well. I'd had a couple of relationship breakdowns where, um, you know, like maybe I'd been either too selfless or selfish at, at times and like not really taking the time to sit back and uh, actually find out what it is that you want as an individual before you get entangled with everyone else's emotions, which I think we're all guilty of as human beings. You know, we always want to help each other. And, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, what they say when you're flying about applying your own mask before helping someone else. It's like that kind of thing of just sometimes you have to, you have to check yourself before you can help anyone else sometimes emotionally and whatever else based around that idea of just taking the time out for yourself and uh, whilst also kind of being thankful for those selfless people in your life you know people that do give you constant support it's almost like begging them to uh, take some time out from looking after someone like me (laughs) and doing something for you you know to take the time and uh, reconnect with your with your own wants and needs which I think is important I'm not going to break it down lyric by lyric because the point of a song is you listen to it and make your own interpretation, but I want to reflect back on you as the songwriter in our discussion further on from that in terms of that line of balance is yours to make because in the end we make our own decisions, we make our own pathway, we get on our own train to get out of that funk, for example. How do you make your own balance? I think I think it's never easy, and I think it's increasingly, you know, when you've kind of got a self-employed mentality as well, like you know, when you're your own vehicle for your own career type of thing, it's very hard to put the to put on the brakes and kind of take a step back. And uh, um, I've kind of got this whole mantra that I kind of try and portray as much as I can naturally through social media as this like whole idea of gratitude in the present so just trying to be more present at times is like something that I really am trying to do a lot more of because you know I spent a lot of time and I I can't completely blame it all on social media but it's very easy to lose focus because when you're always trying to chase the you know chase the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow sort of thing it's very easy to kind of lose focus of all of the great things that are currently in your life as we speak you're always chasing and particularly now on your everything's become streaming this streaming that you're looking at numbers you know it all becomes very grid format you're always looking down the line and you're always chasing numbers figures you, mm-hmm. you want a, a great career and it's very easy to just miss all the little beautiful nuances that go on in life in between all of that what process were you going through when this current single 405 in recent days hit the 5,000 mark on Spotify, what was going through your mind at that point? 
I put a lot of groundwork in in the lead up to the release because um, obviously it was my first time kind of doing a release like completely independently in terms of like I, obviously I'd done a lot of releases under different names prior to this but I mean in recent times I'd, I'd, I'd had some help from management and stuff to try and really help um, structure the release and so it was the first time I'd really had to kind of compartmentalize and pull away from being the artist and actually sit down and try and put my business cap on as much as I could and, and really try and plug these songs to people that genuinely would be interested in hearing them. I'm under no delusion of like, your music's not for everyone. And, and, but I just want to find, I just want to find my audience, you know, the type of music that I really enjoy. I know there's tons of people out there that enjoy it too. And I just want to bring people closer together on a common ground of like a musical style. So I, I put in a lot of groundwork for that and I hadn't released anything for two years. So I was actually really nervous as to like if anyone was even going to, you know, because you're always thinking, yeah, it, it might connect a little bit. I, I was kind of keeping my expectations very minimal. I was trying to be very, I was trying to be a realist about it and just be like, okay, this is the first step back, you know. But obviously I put so much personal energy into the whole trip but you have to check yourself and say, well, the average listener is not going to really give two monkeys about yeah. that because they're, they're not you. They haven't been on that journey. Was it a sense of accomplishment or pride or validation, those kind of emotions and feelings when you reach that? Because I could imagine now that you're independent, that's huge pride that you've reached it. It's accomplishment. But at the same time, there's yeah. that heartfeltness as an artist, a musician, yeah, it was, it, you know, it is a feeling of accomplishment. And um, it was just like a, a sense of uh, <laughs> relief, for want of a better word, you know, because I'd kind of been sat on these songs since New York. And obviously the whole COVID pandemic has happened and that kind of really put a hiccup in things because by rights, I'd be touring now, you know, I'd be out mm. trying to sell these gigs, sell these songs physically in the only way like I've, I've ever known how, which is to be out playing to people I'd, I'd have already been trying to make my way to australia by now i think to just try and play some shows let's talk about that day you're at heathrow last october i'll give you a quick backstory on how it all came to be so i've done this like so far show in birmingham back in the summer and they, it was like really nicely recorded and filmed and it i think it was doing the rounds on all the hashtag stuff on instagram and this guy in new york just reached out to me literally in a direct message on instagram just quizzing me about the tracks and what my plan was for recording and stuff and the fact that he really liked it and he had a very similar setup in New York and we just basically became pen pals really just chatting music and stuff and that's Quinn that I was talking about earlier Quinn Devlin and the Bridge Street Kings is his band there they're a great band you should for anyone that's into that kind of like he's like a real throwback you know in terms of his sound he's got this real 70s sensibility it's like a kind of Van Morrison-esque brilliant energy and is this where we border back not saying they are but is this where we border back to that motown sort of feel as well that you had in your youth yeah definitely i mean like i've just been an absolute i've always been a bit of a sucker for uh for these old records they, they just sound so you know they just feel like they connect because and i'm not and i'm not like uh criticizing like how modern music is made because there's definitely a place for that and i love a lot of modern production i mean but there's something about having a bunch of real people in a room together tracking things live 
there's a sensibility that I was talking about with the live stuff earlier about that that lightning in a bottle moment. You you only get that from having a bunch of real life people in a room together, eyeballing each other, getting a vibe, getting a vibe going in a room, and collectively, human beings, you create that energy in a space. And I think the reason why some of those old records, particularly all the Barry Gordy stuff, the Motown era, like that, it sounds so good because that's exactly what they were doing. They were just capturing that energy in a room with a bunch of great people all putting their all into a common goal of, of creating a track. And uh, so Quinn, you know, coming back to our situation, you know, he, he'd definitely been doing that out in New York and some of the records that he'd made with Sahil, the producer that owns Dodge, where I recorded, they just had that real awesome throwback thing about them. They were kind of purists when it comes to the recording. You know, Sahil does a lot of things analog you know he, he tries to keep a lot of things out of the box and keep it all very real in the room you know get things down one take kind of kind of kind of deal where once people know their parts just so we, we started talking about the possibility of me coming out there and I was kind of this was early in the spring last year and it sounded great on paper but I was kind of worried that I might have got catfished if I put all my energy and then went out there and didn't really know anyone so I found a real cheap flight early June and I said look if I could this is a bit weird and he was living with his girlfriend at the time. And I said, you're probably going to have to convince because he was up for it from the get go. But I said, some strange bloke from England, like coming to just live on your couch for four days might not go down too well with, with the girlfriend, but um, he managed to convince anyway. And I flew out for four days in June just to check it all out and see if, see if it all was legit. Everything couldn't have checked out better. You know, I was there for literally four days. Didn't really sleep much while I was there because we were too busy. He was like showing me the sights of Brooklyn and, lots of beer and lots of sightseeing so yeah it was kind of a bit of a baptism of fire like but I just knew from that point on that um that was going to be the place to to cut these tunes and so I came back to England then June time and that gave me a few months then to get a few things in order to make it happen uh worked on a few demos to send them over to the guys so they could get their heads around what we needed to do and then um in October I was stood then at Heathrow Airport ready to go and make this record a reality which all started from the guy, Quinn Devlin, seeing this Sofa yeah. concert in, on social media somewhere, which we were just kind of yeah. berating a little, just fine, prior to that. Yeah, this is the funny thing, isn't it? It's yeah. kind of like, yeah, I've always had a negative attitude towards social media and, it, and like the most millennial thing happened to me. And uh, it, it did change my opinion of, of socials, actually. It made me realise that actually, I've always looked at it from a slightly negative angle because there's, there's so much, what's the word? It's just a false environment. You know, everyone living this best life image thing and you just like, you know, but I'm starting to see more and more that people are realizing that actually people want the real thing. That people, people want snapshots into like real life, you know. You can choose to take from it what you want really and you can turn your platform into anything that you want to. And just when you think about it like that, it puts the power right back to you as an individual and so that's what I've kind of been doing with this whole like trying to live in the present stuff and kind of show that self because it helps me check, it helps me keep rechecking myself too. And um, so that's why like if you go onto my Instagram, you'll see like stupid pictures of me like I've been working on a veg patch during lockdown and stuff. And it's just like couldn't be any less like I guess like traditionally like rock star and cool, but like I just I don't care about that. You know, I want I want to just. Uh, just show like a realness to you know everyone's just human and they've all got normal traits and 
you know, I think it's nice to show those qualities, particularly younger people coming through. Cause I always think about like, I've got cousins that are young and they've, you know, I'm lucky enough that I just missed when I, when I was growing up, when I was really young, like we were still coming out of that nineties analog thing. So we, we, we grew up without most of this noise. Whereas now if you're born in that millennial era where it's just, you literally have an Instagram account the minute you, you, you popped into the world, it's kind of a scary, scary thing to navigate, isn't it? As a young person, I think with so much, you know, and, and people wonder why there's, there's so much mental health issues. Uh, I think you can relate a lot of that to what young people are being exposed to at a young age, I think. A couple of episodes but, before you will be a conversation with some 20-somethings called Fionn. That's the name of the band, Fionn. They're twin sisters. And exactly that. And their latest EP is called Everyone's a Critic. And that's how they feel is that they are online, they are doing the social, and everyone's got an opinion about them because that's the way they're being perceived. Social media also in the music world can be about the Spotify playlist. And you have one called Conversion Machine, which is 10 new music tunes or new tunes at least, I guess. Talk me through what Conversion Machine is on your Spotify playlist, which is updated every week. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I, um, it is it is updated every week, but I've been a bit slack the last couple of weeks, to be honest. But I am going to start them again as of tomorrow. I set myself a deadline to kind of keep, because it's weird. I was talking to an artist friend of mine yesterday because we were actually laughing about like as musicians when you're always working on music, actually it's weird. I, I got into this horrible habit of not actually listening to much music, which sounds terrible, doesn't it? But you kind of surrounding yourself so much of the musical thing that it can be difficult on your downtime then to just sit and passively listen to music without like picking it apart. Mm. And it can, and it can seem really you stop listening to music in a relaxing way sometimes because you're just being like overly critical. And, and uh, so I started the conversion machine as an, as an attempt to kind of reignite like my love of just listening to music for music's sake, really, and just trying to spread a bit of love in terms of other emerging artists and how hard they work on these records and just trying to compile it every week. And it, I've got 10 new tracks every week that it kind of forces me at some point in the week to sit down and actually listen to these to tunes and kind of whittle the ones out that I've, I think are cool and um, put them out there really. Of recent times, uh, it's been full of Australian artists. I, I can't get enough of like the music over there, man. There's so much good, good music coming from you guys. You've played live with him. Matt Corby, thoughts about the great man from Australia? Yeah, well, he's, uh, he is actually the king, in my opinion. Like, I just, uh, a bit of slight, slight little bit of fanboyism with, with Matt Corby or a bit of hero worship. It was quite funny when I got to open the show for him down in Cornwall because you kind of have to play it cool. But in, my, in the back of my mind, I was like, I was so pumped to be able to see him and the band play because, you know, he doesn't come to the UK that often. On touring circuits in the summer, festivals maybe, but, you know, it's not very often. He's this neck of the woods with the whole band, you know, and he was for those shows. And it was just incredible to actually watch them go through the whole process of setting up and sound checking and he's such a lovely down-to-earth person just you know super humble just just super kind of obsessed about just getting the sound right that's all he cares about he doesn't care about anything else and you know i, I know he's got a lot of female fans for obvious reasons because he's a good looking chap and he can play everything and he just he just looks the part he just oozes an aura of coolness about him but it but for me musically it obviously comes from the music and his deep love 
and his passion for creating music. And it was cool because on the night of the gig, actually, I just think he wasn't feeling the vibe. It was a bit of a strange vibe for him. Um, and I think probably they'd done a lot of shows and they were very stressed and like where the actual gig was, it was right on the beach. And I don't think the crew got the memo about how difficult the loading was going to be. And I think everyone was just really stressed because he had to climb down these like 90 steps of this cliff face down to the beach. And it was a serious mission to get everything down there. But I actually stayed and had a few beers that night. And then in the morning, I came back down those steps to get my equipment. And as I was walking up with my last batch, there was like a beach chalet there. And I heard this voice, this Aussie voice shouting my name. I turned around and it was Matt on the veranda. And he was like, you know, he was kind of shouting up to me being like, when you load up, come down, you know, we'll have a beer. And which was great. So I came down and sat on the veranda with him for like a good couple of hours. Um, him and a couple of guys from the band just talking about, I kind of felt like an interviewer myself. I was kind of asking him all about like Rainbow Valley and because I love that album so much, how it all came to be. And yeah, we kind of just exchanged emails and stuff and just said, keep in touch. And, uh, you know, if you, he was like, if you're ever in, you know, if you're ever in Australia and you want to come up, come up to track something, he was like, you're more than welcome. I was just like, if that, I'm going to take that as an invite and a uh, great guy to chat to for, for a few hours. It was just a really ex inspiring experience for me. Like just from a musician point of view, like someone like that, you, you can tell how many how many hours he actually puts in. You know the whole ten thousand hour thing. I mean, he goes above and beyond that. You can quite clearly tell just by the fact that he plays everything on the record and his professionalism is like second to none. It's funny because I'm currently currently working on a friend's project here down in or down in Bristol, a friend of mine called George Glue. He's a great artist and he's just about to release a lot of new music and. Fortunately enough, like, you know, he's asked me to be on board with the band and we've just been going through some rehearsals. And He's another one of those people that just elevates your professionalism because, you know, he's such a stickler for the details. That whole thing about surrounding yourself with better people to make you better. That's, I definitely got a vibe from like Corby's crew that everyone was at, the t at their peak of, of what they do. You know, he surrounds himself with those people that bring the best out in you. And I think that's a great mantra to take into like all things in life. We're currently in conversation with Alex Lilo. Just thought I'd let you know that while we're speaking about Matt Corby's live band, Bree Tranner will be one of the guests we'll hear on episode 91 as we speak with the members of Serbian Tiger. So you may know her from the tune Big Eyes and many other performances that are done as part of Matt Corby's tour. Episode 91 might be of interest to you. Now back to our extended conversation with Alex Lilo. Surf and Sam, talk to us where you first learnt to surf in Cornwall. I've got Bude. Oh, and Bude. Yeah, Bude. That's a place in Cornwall. Yeah, we used to spend a lot of time down there just as as a family. Like, it's a great place to holiday and stuff. And I wasn't quite a teenager when I when I had my first experience surfing. But yeah, I just kind of fell in love with it, really. Got the bug for being down by the coast. And, and uh, as the years went by, and I used to go down there more and more and when I learned to drive as a teenager, like that's the first place I used to go and North Devon and Cornwall and gigging down there too and being in pubs and stuff, you just make friends. And so yeah, there's a quite a posse of people down there that a lot of locals are great surfers. And a good friend of mine was actually living with a big wave surfer for a while, Lyndon Wake. It was on the same crew as like Andrew Cotton and all those big wave surfer dudes. And we used to hang out with them and I cringe at calling myself a surfer because like I, I enjoy it. I wouldn't be throwing the shackers and stuff and being like, yeah, you know, I just... I love being around that scene. I love being in the water and stuff. But again, I'm just always impressed by people that are obsessed with a certain thing, whether it be music or surfing or whatever, like people that just put their all into something. I'm just fascinated by those characters. And 
being down by the coast, always a lot of them. But yeah, Bude was a, a great place for me to learn to surf. There's some beautiful beaches down there. And a lot of Australians actually in Bude. A lot of them come over to uh, just look really cool and be lifeguards for the summer. Just put all of us to, all of our all of our Brits to shame with their uh, peak physical condition and their um, great suntans, you know. So you've done you've done the surfing of the British Isles right mm. through to the heights of the Scandinavian mountains. So you've done the lows as well as the highs, but you say that you're a water baby. What was it about doing the mountains that was different to doing the water? I think just that, yeah. It's like totally uh, weirdly like skiing and stuff. It kind of has that. You do get the same kind of feeling, don't you? It's all about flow. You know, you, you feel kind of weightless when you're, when you're either cruising a wave or cruising down a slope. It's kind of you do get there's a similar sensibility that you get from that experience for me it just it's almost the activity is almost secondary to like the environment that you're in if that makes sense like i I love it and i enjoy it i'm no like adrenaline junkie i'm just a cruisy i'm a cruisy kind of person and i just it's more about being immersed in that environment that just gives you so much like being in those mountains you absorb that environment and it just gives you this sense of freedom without being too woo-woo and spiritual, it just gives you this like oneness with, because it's, you know, when you're in the cities and stuff and you're focusing on music and you're in this digital age where you're just always interacting like we are now and meeting up and sometimes it's it's good to just check yourself and take yourself right back to basics. And I, and I think with activities like surfing or skiing or whatever, like when you're surfing and you're being mashed around by the power of the ocean, like you don't really have time to think about anything else. You're just in that moment and you're just living. You're just trying to stay alive and have a good time and, and uh, catch a nice wave. And it pulls you out of thinking about all the confines of societal life that we find ourselves in. To quote a track called 405, to find a better place for my head is exactly what you're doing in that scenario. Yeah, yeah definitely. Let me do a weird segue whilst we're in that mode and take you that studio in New York I believe it was above a pest control place. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. It was like the uh, like the Ghostbusters van, like parked in the bottom garage bit. You know, we, we didn't see any of the catches or anything like that, but it was just funny. It, it was just kind of so unassuming, like where we were recording. You couldn't, you know, you wouldn't have thought that there'd be a little hovel of creativity amongst all of that. It was just very industrial. But then you climb the staircase, so... We're on the top floor of that building. So you go from ground one, which is pest control, you go into the, and you go past ground two, and there was a lady in there that turned it into like an art gallery. So she's in there with a radio blasting, just throwing paint around left, right, and center. But then at the top, obviously, we had the studio. So yeah, it's just a great, I mean, there's just so much stuff going on, and everyone's on top of each other. So there's just so much activity. Talk to us about who the players were on that top floor with you. A lot of them are just Quinn's friends, really. They're just full-time professional musicians that I think most of them met at Columbia University. They're all kind of studying music as far as I understand it. They all brought this complete level of, they just knew where and where not to be to make a record sound great, if that makes sense. Like, I think that's something that they that you get when you've studied jazz or you've been around that kind of environment. You, you learn to pick your moments and where to make things shine it just it, it made all all the songs that i brought to them just brought them to life in a way that i could couldn't even imagine to run you through the players we had andy shim on bass just an all-round amazing player he's played on so many cool records in brooklyn and then we have zach glory an insane guitarist i don't know how to describe these guys other than just awesome 
they just really know their instrument. But more importantly, you know, they're always playing for the song, playing. They're never kind of indulging in their instrument. It's always to just add a flavor to make that track stand out in a certain way. And um, we had Jordan Wolf on drums. Again, brilliant. I, I stayed with him in Bushwick for a couple of weeks at his apartment while his friend was out of town. And it was great to really get to know him and to get to go to the studio every day and work on a record was just, was just awesome. We have Sahil Ansari, who's obviously the producer, but he's also an incredible jazz drummer too. So he was able to play percussion and do all those amazing bits and bobs. Then we have the talisman that is Quinn Devlin, who sort of played keys, played synth, played organ, played anything with a keyboard, really. Just an incredible all-rounder. Then, of course, we have like the on some of the later tracks that are coming down the line, we have some really beautiful moments. Uh, an artist called Margot and another artist called Sarah Cicero, who are both incredible Brooklyn artists. Oh, yeah, we had uh, Willem DeConch from Fleet Foxes. He... Just a name drop that he came in and played some horns. Did have his name written down because it did jump to me to have yeah. someone from the Fleet Foxes just drop on past. Yeah, pretty cool actually. Again, that's a testament to like how um, respected these guys are in New York to, to have people like that just just be friends and just drop in just to see what's going on, you know. So yeah, that was kind of a nucleus of the band really. I've said in a previous interview, um, I'll just quote it back to you that those New York recordings were a sense of communal spirit i think that's what you've been touching on throughout every time that we've referred back to new york is that sense of communal yeah. spirit that sense of home away from home yeah 100 well, percent. i just couldn't believe like because i was a complete stranger to a lot of these guys when i arrived and straight away they just accepted me with open arms you know and were really genuinely excited to kind of have someone from another country come and want to record with them you know it was almost like a, a when i first got there kind of being typical, like slightly British cynical, I just thought maybe they're just sort of, you know, humoring me a little bit to make me feel comfortable. But as the time went on, I, I genuinely got the feeling that, you know, they really enjoyed having me there and they really wanted to work on these tracks. And, and you know, since I've come home, it's a testament because we've all kept in touch and, you know, we're, I do feel like I've made a bunch of really great close friends out there now. And I do think if COVID hadn't happened, I'd already be back out there making more music, to be honest. It was just such a nice environment to be around. Obviously making music together, brings you closer together and quicker than normal encounters but just outside of being in the sessions just hanging out and getting them to show me like the real brooklyn scene away from like all the tourism was just so cool they obviously are part of 405 and easy way did you get a whole album while we were there is there an album in your back pocket just waiting for the right moment where are we at yeah it's kind of like basically it's not quite an album and it's it's a long EP, I guess. It's, it, we only got chance because obviously I was out there for what was it, four or five weeks, but I um, obviously was having to work that time around everyone's schedule because they're all busy guys. We were only able to squeeze in six tracks, so not quite an album. So I guess it's like a extended, extended play. <laughs> uh, six to eight can be a mini album. Um, I won't run you through my whole yeah. thesis of, but you know when pe- people start calling things EPs that are three tracks, I do get upset. But six tracks. Can be a mini yeah, album. Yeah. That's fine. Lee Volbeck, you've uh, you've performed alongside that great man as well. Talk to us about when, how that all happened, and the experience of performing next to Leith. He's another one of those characters that just oozes a sense of otherworldly artistry. I think he's not understood by everyone, but I think the people that do understand him and where he comes from really understand it. And uh, he's one of those musicians for me. I first discovered him supporting Gregory Allen Isaacoff 
me and my brother were at a gig in Bristol and he just opened up and I was blown away by just this poetic essence to the way he like delivers his songs it's just it's almost like the songs are just just a housing for his words you know what I mean like he just he would just, just play these these chords and he would just rattle this this story he's just a storyteller essentially but he'd rattle them off in such a an entranced way he was just he, he would just go into this this, this like other worldly state when he was playing it was just captivating so I became a huge fan of his and then the opportunity came up through a local promotion company in Birmingham which is another city along from where I'm based here and they thought we'd be a good match so the opportunity came up and of course I jumped at it because I was like well I'm a you know I'm a great fan so it'd be nice to get to meet him and play alongside him and it was great to chat to him backstage because we got talking we got nerdy on equipment and stuff because he likes to play this old loves to play this old whirly through this old fender amp and he was having some issues with it on the night actually and when I actually got there he had like a head torch on and the, the front off the front office amp and he was in there with all these screwdrivers and stuff it was just it was just really funny really nice guy again just passionate about what he does and uh, he actually gave me some great advice because I was feeling a bit weird at the time all this stuff with the management and everything and he was saying you know he never got a record label to be interested in him he, he was trying his all through his 20s to get interest and nothing came his way and then all of a sudden he just discovered that he didn't really need them and then at 31 he suddenly got like quite a lot of interest from all these different labels and you know, he just said the key to anything in life is just to be consistent and just follow, you know, if you want to do something enough, you just got to stick to your guns and just keep working towards it and, and you will find your audience. You're 26 now. Are you looking towards the next decade to achieve things between now and that third decade? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I, I'm, try, I'm trying to not put too much emphasis on age and time because I do think I spent a lot of my teens putting like a deadline on like when I was going to be like successful and then you reach those milestones and it doesn't quite happen for you and then you get really depressed about it and it's just like well why the type of music that I make doesn't require me to be a 17 year old that I'm just going to keep making music and hopefully the right people at the right time connect with it everything else in between is it it's just confetti (laughs) before you leave us behind you is a 55 baritone talk to us about the red guitar that's uh, seen in a lot of your online videos that is a 55 baritone well done john thank you it's a great guitar i am um, i actually bought that in, um, in an exchange shop in wales i swapped a load of old pedals in for it because it just looks really cool and um having a baritone is quite interesting sonically i played some some songs of that on on old record that i did and it's just a great studio edition usually to have in in there it's, they're quite interesting because they're kind of bodies are sort of made out of like a plastic material. They're really light and they, they feel really cheap, but actually they sound brilliant. Yeah, for any guitar nerds out there that know know about Dan Electro, they know what I mean. It's kind of, they're kind of a quirky little instrument to have. And what's your main guitar? I guess the one that would have been taken with you into the studio in New York for the recordings that we're going to hear. Well, I guess all songs mostly start on like my acoustic, which is the Takamine Tan C15. It's it's the one with like a cool tube preamp in it. It's it's, um, it's a really nice acoustic guitar. It's uh, it's this one actually. I, I got it on board. And that's the main one that headed over to New York. Yes, yeah, so I took that one and I actually took the baritone too because that's that's on four or five actually on the little riff that kind of there's that low. It's kind of that's the guitar that's on there. Alex Leo, thank you very much for joining Radio Notes. And congratulations on both Easy Way and Four O Five and the up and coming mini album from you. Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it, mate. And uh, 
hopefully I'll be out I'll be out that side of the, the world soon. Alex Leo, latest single 405. They can be found online at alexleo.com. That's Leo with two L's. Thanks to Alex Leo for being our feature guest this time. Next time... Saraswati has always been my favourite goddess. She is the goddess of, like the Hindu goddess of learning and books and knowledge and artistry. So ever since I was a kid, like we have Saraswati Day each year and my parents would always be like, put out your favourite books, give thanks to these books for giving you like the knowledge you need. Kumang will be our feature guest. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. Australia.